Uh, welcome, everybody. This is episode five of Not for Attribution, the Winnipeg Free Press podcast on government, politics, and public policy. This is the uh, post-provincial beginning of the federal election campaign, comma, long dash. I can't believe we're going to do uh, cover an election for 10 straight weeks episode. Um, where we're gonna we're gonna double dip today. We're gonna talk a little bit about the campaign that was. That it seems a million years ago now. There was a provincial campaign, but just uh, the previous week, uh, the Progressive Conservatives were reelected with a uh, convincing majority, and uh, there was a bunch of other narratives in play. Joining me today to discuss that, and then later on we'll discuss the federal campaign. Uh, my my colleague uh, Tom Broadbeck. I did it again. Do you know that there's like there's a hashtag starting that explain the giggle? I think is the the hashtag. No, <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. Okay, but thank you. I did get one inquiry. I got one inquiry on Twitter, <laughs> so it's a thing. Uh, Jessica Patella Urbanski is a legislative reporter. Uh, my other colleague Nigan Sinclair, without the giggle, uh, uh, op-ed editorial and uh, columnist writer, and part-time academic is the way I like to refer to him. And myself, I'm Dan Lett, columnist of the Winnipeg Free Press. Provincial campaign, 28 days, felt longer, uh, felt much longer than 28 days. We thought that we would talk about our highlights and lowlights of the campaign. The things that we thought were the most positive about the campaign and the things that we thought were the stupidest or our most negative. Tom, what was what stands out as a positive or a good thing from this campaign? Um, I'll focus on the NDP. I thought it was very clever of them to come out uh, early in the campaign with their uh, costed platform. Um, they're necessarily going to be criticized about spending, and they nipped that in the bud right at the beginning, which I thought was really smart because it doesn't eliminate or it didn't eliminate questions about where they're going to get the money from for this spending announcement or that spending announcement, but it, it certainly deflated it. And it, and it was, uh, I mean, there's still questioning over the numbers, lots of debate about the numbers and whether they're realistic or not, but they were put together by, you know, people like Dave Woodbury, who used to work in finance uh, during the previous NDP administration. So they were relatively solid and questions we asked them uh, at the time they, uh, about the finances and infrastructure spending and so on, they had good answers too. So I thought that was clever. I thought uh, the dumbest thing they came out with was the um, the carbon tax uh, plan, which was, um, what plan? Uh, it was some sort of convoluted plan to um, force the feds to accept a $20 a ton carbon tax, which the feds have been adamant that they're not going to move on. They're going to $50 a ton. Uh, any province that doesn't get there, they're going to backfill it with their own. There's no room for negotiation there, and uh, they tried to sell some plan that had some level of negotiation with the feds. Uh, and, then, and then this added um, tax rebate or Manitoba Hydro rebate of $350 um, was also ludicrous because it had no connection at all with people reducing their emissions. Um, you get a $350 rebate from your hydro bill, you can spend it on putting more gas in your car or uh, you know heating your house two degrees warmer in the winter. It, it, was, it was, wasn't well thought out, and um, I think that hurt them a bit because it was, it was a bit of a laughable uh, announcement. Should we move on to lowlights then from the NDP? I thought they struggled by only kind of making their primary focus healthcare. Obviously, early on and throughout the campaign, on the very last day or second to last day, putting those little focus healthcare signs on all of their uh, 
their lawn sign placards. That was their big last announcement where they had media available. Um, but having that singular focus, as much as it was, we saw with a probe research poll, voters' main concern was healthcare. Uh, I think it kind of stymied their campaign in the sense that we could have been talking about education, we could have been talking about possible school board amalgamation, which may be coming after the K-12 review this year, and we never really got there. Um, and in terms of addictions healthcare as well, all of the parties talked about that early in the campaign, but it wasn't a through line throughout the remaining three weeks. In the first week, I think everyone unveiled their mental health and addictions platforms, and then we didn't hear really much about it in the time since. So that singular focus, I think, was the NDP's biggest downfall. How about you, Nikon? Yeah, well, if we're if we're going with the NDP sort of stream here, um, I would say that the the real problem I think with the NDP is that there were so many missed opportunities with uh, privatization. Like you mentioned, you mentioned um, uh, it's kind of everything, you know, from education to. But I think privatization was just such a missed opportunity. You could have really differentiated yourself on that issue, and it, you saw little things kind of dribbling out at the beginning of the campaign involving secret emails and so on, so forth. But it really didn't go anywhere. Um, and I, the three hundred fifty dollar hydro rebate or that was absolutely amateurish and came, I think that's really what sunk the debate for Wab Canoe and that particular issue. It came off sounding very confusing. It ended up sounding like uh, it didn't have any point. And, and, but there were so many, I think, highlights, and, and I don't know if we're doing highlights as well, but, yeah, but I, what I'd say is, you know, uh, the NDP's strategic placing of candidates in particular areas that hit on certain demographics was brilliant. I mean, Jamie Moses winning in Savatel, I think, is a game changer over there for them. And the ways that they were able to get back seats that they had lost, they, I think the NDP did, did just amount, the right amount in order to not only keep Wab as leader, but then also uh, make a platform potentially for a future. And I think they weren't looking at that future early on in the campaign. I think, in fact, there was large rumblings from what my sources tell me of a leadership review that was not going to go well for WAB. Mm -hmm. And their aim was 17 seats, we should mention as well, and they managed to get to 18. So it's a good a good news day in the end for WAB. Can you? So, uh, you know, I will talk about the progressive conservatives in a minute because you guys were all too scaredy cats to talk about the guys who won the election. But... Um, the, uh, I, I will say about the, the limited focus of the NDP campaign, um, I think in an election where they actually had a chance to compete, uh, to govern, it would have been a horrible mistake. I think uh, in an election where they're literally trying to rebuild, rebuild the foundation of the house, it, it kind of makes sense to me. Um, you know, to hammer away uh, at, uh, at the number one issue, uh, be credible on that issue. It's also the issue that the the incumbent government is most vulnerable on, and then um, you know, as uh, as Nigan said, uh, be very strategic uh, about how you attack the the seats that you want to retain. They retained so many seats where they lost incumbents. I mean, it, that is just a it's it's kind of an organizational accomplishment that you can't really measure in terms of the dollar spent and things like that. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, they didn't really put much of a dent in the uh, in the Tory majority, but um, you know, they they started they got a they got a row of cinder blocks in that foundation, you know, something they can sort of build upon. So the 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 most brilliant thing I saw was also in the rest of the campaign was also the stupidest thing I saw was the property tax uh, uh, pledge by the Conservatives. So 
just to explain myself, how I can be of two minds, I thought that, I think as a, as a policy, it's a 10,000-pound uh, gorilla. It's like, it's such a huge and seismic change in the way government raises money for education. And it was presented without even a shred of explanation about how they were going to do it. As a matter of fact, I mean, they attempted to explain it, uh, but the explanations we got were sort of like, well, as yet unidentified savings and as yet we're going to do more uh, value for money audits and we're going to, we're going to, turn it over to the frontline civil servants to bring in ideas that are going to save us money. <clears throat> there isn't a single thing wrong with what they said, but you're talking about, you know, trying to put out a forest fire with a squirt gun. And it, like the, what they recommended is just so out of whack with the size of the promise. Now, when we get deeper into it uh, in this upcoming session and towards the budget in particular, we're probably going to be able to press for more details because uh, less money... Uh, from property taxes for education means less of something else, which is entirely okay as long as you can be clear about what that other less is going to be. So as a campaign strategy, it was so big and hard to explain, but so easy to communicate on signs. Like you mentioned, the NDP put the Save Healthcare or whatever on their, their signs. Uh, you know, uh, they, they put the extra little uh, tags on Tory signs, you know. No more education, you know, the end of education property tax. That's probably not exactly what it said. but um, And so there was a uh, macro communications element to it that was really brilliant. And it's, you know, all the other parties were left to say, uh, 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 it's really hard. You can't do that. That's too hard. And there's Premier Pallister, you know, puffing his chest out saying, well, you know, I, I'm in it to do hard things and I'll show you. I mean... He won't be around, actually, to see this one come to fruition for sure. Even if you and I are wrong about <laughs> the midterm retirement, he's definitely not going to be around for a pledge. He won't be here in 12 years. No, uh, absolutely not. Uh, one final question on the provincial campaign uh, for the panel. Do you believe that the, the result accurately reflects... Uh, the sort of dynamics in the Manitoba electorate. So does this does this 36, 18, 3, and 0 for the Greens, better luck next time, uh, is, that, uh, is that an accurate reflection of where the electorate is at right now? Well, it never is in first past the post, is it? I mean, you get slightly below 50%. What did they get, 48%, 47% popular vote, which is actually pretty good by historical standards. Um, we've seen in Canada majority governments winning with high 30s. You know, uh, you get regularly 40, 41, 42. So to get uh, high 40s is, is actually pretty high. But, I mean, it... The way first past the post works is it's never reflective of of the population at large in the legislative assembly, right? Um, I mean, thirty seven seats is one of the largest majorities in decades, uh, but that doesn't reflect the diversity of political views that are out there. There's there's no way it does. Philman never got close to thirty seven seats, um, uh, thirty six seats. Um, I think the NDP got up to thirty seven, got thirty six. Uh, Philman never got close to high 30s. He was 31. Um, even Gary Dewar, when he came in in 99, I think got 34 or something like that. So, uh, but no, I, I don't think it's reflective of uh, of the population at large. 
I didn't get a chance to really talk too much about the conservative uh, campaign, but uh, I think it, this is apropos here. Um, what, what I saw was the stupidest, but yet was also the most brilliant, was uh, just the leadership of Brian Pallister and the way that he treated Indigenous issues throughout the entire campaign as almost laughably, like, like I, I mean, he said that he's done more, more for reconciliation than anyone in Canadian history. He said that he suffered more in poverty and strife than Wab Canoe did. Uh, he he went on his record in saying that he's got the most diverse um, uh, the most diverse set of candidates in Manitoba history. And then on the night of the winning the election, it's just white man mania up there. Uh, it just the performance of Brian Pallister is both um, reminds me of uh, Stephen Colbert's truthiness. But then, on the same time, it also speaks to the rural. It speaks to the rural mentality of the way in which there's kind of a view of reconciliation, a view of power, a view of rural Winnipeg splits, a, a view of politics here in Manitoba, the way that it's played. And I think, in fact, in many ways, the way that the split goes down to a blue rural. Uh, uh, an orange urban, it's almost exactly indicative to what Winnipeg is all about. And who is cut out of all of that is Indigenous people for the most part. And I wrote a, uh, a rather uh, depressing column in the middle of the election or near the end saying, honestly, there is no interest here by the parties to appeal to Indigenous voters. So all this drive to bring out the Indigenous vote, I don't get it. Like, I don't get why Indigenous peoples would participate in such a way in which the system continues to abuse you. And so uh, what I would say is this system quite accurately reflects the this particular election anyways. Mm -hmm. When you said that question, my mind jumped to diversity of the, the new legislature. And obviously, we saw a lot more diverse candidates get elected this time around, um, including a few more Indigenous folks. So I'm working on a part two to a story I did before the election about... Um, what our legislature looks like in terms of Manitoba's actual makeup, in terms of racial diversity, sexual diversity, um, gender. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what the results are. And we already know we have three black MLAs for the first time in Manitoba's history. So that's a big deal. And uh, a lot more women elected as well. Yeah, the I mean, the legislature, does. it tends to, uh, there's a lag with society, which is kind of understandable. Uh, but you know, it, it is uh, it, it is getting to uh, to a point where we can start to see the reality of a Manitoba population. I mean, really, there there is no province in the country over the last five years that's changed more demographically than Manitoba. Um, you know, it used to be when I you know a million gazillion years ago when I came to Manitoba, they talked about. Uh, uh, the multicultural nature of Winnipeg in particular, what they're really talking about is the number of different European communities that lived within, within you know, and distinct communities, but European communities nonetheless. Then, you know, we saw the, you know, really like such an incredible growth in the indigenous community. We've seen the Filipinos. And then in the last five years, it's just, it's been incredible. So it is, it is positive, you know, I, that's a positive thing. Nagan mentioned the urban-rural split, and, and this remains the biggest sort of concern for me and I understand the deep deep connections that the NDP have to certain parts of Winnipeg and to the north and the deep connection that voters in rural Manitoba uh, you know Interlake, Westman, Southern Manitoba have to the Conservative Party and I mean you know I don't expect these to go away very soon but you know the election result well, this is this is one of those elections where uh, like 2011 where the electorate turned out in a way where there's 
kind of, I wish there was a bit of a different result. I, I don't really know what kind of a result I, I would have liked to have seen the Greens for 30,000 votes get an election. I mean, you know, in a rural, in a rural riding, like for 5,500 votes, you can get yourself a, a seat. To have that many votes and not have a seat is, is kind of worrisome. But they came look, in second in Turtle Mountain. Oh, I know. That was it. Was unbelievable. Like fifteen hundred. Second votes? in Turtle Mountain. In Turtle Mountain, yeah. We sent a team of forensic journalists up there to figure out what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, um, and and you, and you cannot talk about urban rural split without talking about indigenous and non-indigenous split. And I my my great fear is the results show that while we're becoming more diverse and the legislature is kind of reflecting that, we're actually in full retreat on engaging with indigenous people. And, and I, you know, I am glad, again, I voted before I read your column. If I, if I had read your column first, I might not have voted. It was that kind of a, you know, but it was, no, but it was truth to power. Like, like you know, indigenous people uh, have to be given a reason to vote. And boy, this campaign did not give anybody of indigenous, uh, you know. Yeah. So what my column was, my column wasn't a comment on don't vote, but my column was really, and whether I succeeded or not is debatable, but why vote? And uh, I would say that uh, if I could rewrite the column, I might have put this as the ending, is, is I think the round dancing by South Chief, the Southern Chiefs organization was probably the most active Indigenous participation in the entire election, including the parties. Because if the parties aren't going to appeal, then we've got to demand some kind of presence within the election itself. And, and you know, a few dozen people stopping Portage Main uh, traffic for a short period of time was really the only presence in the entire campaign. Good on them for that. Yeah, the the liberal the liberal dilemma is not unlike the green. I mean, they had a a ten percent increase in their vote. They ran uh, very strong campaigns and very strong second place campaigns in a lot of ridings, and yet lost a seat. Uh, now a lot of that had to do with the fact that one of their you know the most effective maybe the most effective MLA they had in their caucus, Judy Clausen, didn't run for re-election. And that was definitely to their detriment, and it, it left that that uh, northern riding completely wide open to uh, for the NDP. But you know, I think I think the Liberals may need. It's okay if they want to run fifty-seven candidates, but they better get. Uh, they they have to become better at competing in six. You know, like and and the problem is, you know, they're good in three. Um, and I think Dugald showed that he's got a pretty good hold on St. Boniface right now. But beyond that, they just, it just seems to be uh, hit and miss. And I, I think that, you know, like, it, like I said, it's okay to run in every riding, but be realistic, right? Focus your attentions on a smaller number of ridings. Which the Greens did in a sense too, focusing on Wolseley. I was going to add that before the Greens, in terms of lowlights, I think should have run, run James Bedham and Wolseley. Um, he did not have to run against another leader in Fort Rouge that really cratered his vote there. Um, but in terms of the Liberals too, they did come close in a few other ridings. In Tuxedo, they were second place. In the Maples, second place. Uh, one other riding I can't remember off the top of my head. Sorry, where? Burroughs. No, they were third there. Um, but they got close in North Winnipeg. And in talking with the party president this week, too, David Engel was saying that's where the most of their membership has grown is in North Winnipeg, Northwest Winnipeg. So uh, thanks probably in large part to the Lammers. Um But if they're looking for more growth there, that might be where we, we see more liberal seats in the future. One last thing I wanted to add, too, in terms of lowlights for me was the kitchen table prop. 
<laughs> the conservatives <laughs> campaign platform uh, release. I wasn't there, but I saw the memes and the pictures afterwards. That picture, that prop kind of begged for a meme to happen after the fact. Yeah, so. the uh, I remember, I think, you know, on the day that that was, you know, became widely known, there was a great tweet that said, um, I have to leave work and go home right now and clear off my kitchen table to make room for all the money that's coming in. <laughs> well, my question is, I don't have a kitchen table. So where's my money? I don't, I don't actually own a kitchen table. And evidently, because I tweeted this during the campaign and I got, some, I got some response back from others who also don't have kitchen tables. So where's our money, Dan? Uh, I don't have a kitchen it's table. It's lost somewhere between the sink and your dining room table, I think. Somewhere on the floor between the sink and the dining room table. If we're going to rem- remember this election for anything, it's going to be the kitchen table. Can, can we talk briefly about the absolute lack of debates uh, as a wholehearted mechanism for democracy in this particular election, or the lack thereof of, of any interest in debating by the Manitoba Premier in relation to all the other leaders. Uh, I mean, I get a front runner campaign. I understand, I mean, we saw it with, uh, with Justin Trudeau the other night in the city TV debate, McLean's TV debate, didn't show up, had no interest in showing up, had, would rather be, you know, s- s- I, I, the regular line by uh, Premier Pallister was, I'm going to the communities, I'm not standing at a, behind a debate podium kind of thing. But the absolute lack of debates amongst the leadership, and in this provincial election, the lack of interest by the Premier to engage with the other political leaders in any way, even in a community forum, what do we think about that? I mean, that's an interesting trend that I don't know if it's been precedented in Manitoba history. This one debate wasn't even an hour, it was under an hour, uh, that was a whirlwind at best and confusing at, ba- at worst. If I might uh, rely on a most excellent editorial that appeared in the Winnipeg Free Press that I may or may not have had a hand in writing. <laughs> but I had help in thinking, like because it's a group think, you know, when you write an editorial. But... Um, it, it's the desperate, desperate need in this country and in this province to turn over um, the the design and uh, execution of a debate plan for any general election to an independent body and to stop giving the governing party a veto on which debates take place. Now, I, I will say, dovetailing slightly with the federal vote, I found it interesting that on the uh, last week's debate on Thursday night, um, <clears throat> McLean's uh, federal uh, leaders debate, uh, uh, the liberal leader, the prime minister, uh, Justin Trudeau, would not participate, and they went ahead. And that's certainly part of the solution. Um, the Winnipeg Chamber canceled the debate, uh, probably the most anticipated debate of the election. I can't really say that anybody anticipates the TV consortium debate because it's such a debacle. But uh, the, the the chamber debate... It's certainly anticipated, and it's a big room. They have 1,500 people there for the debate, uh, covered a lot by the media. And, you know, when when Premier Pallister pulled out, the chamber should have gone ahead because that that does create a consequence uh, for not getting with the program. And uh, I think until the the debate hosts start doing what McLean's has done uh, and or we create, you know, a separate body to advise on these things, 
we're giving governing parties a veto on, on the debates. I think they should have gone ahead with it as well, you know, rubber chicken and all, and um, and bring attention to the fact because, you know, outside of us in the media and, 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 and political junkies, you know, that story never really got out there. You know, that, that as you said, you know, probably the, the, the most widely anticipated, certainly highest profile leaders debate um, gets cancelled because the Premier doesn't want to participate in it and gives no good reason for it, right? There's just no good reason at all not to be participating in these debates. You know, and Nigan, you were talking earlier about how this has changed over time. You know, I remember when I was talking to Gary Philman, the former Premier, in, in a past uh, episode um, of our podcast, and, and he talked about, you know, in the late 80s, in the 88 election, how they were doing tons of leaders' debates. They were on the road before the, the days of social media, and they are just going from community to community. You know, every little community center and every little, you know, um, church basement had, not always with the leaders, but often with the leaders. Can you imagine a guy like Gary Philman, Gary Dewar, and Sharon Carstairs at the time, you know, driving around the province doing you know, community by community leaders debates, most of which are not broadcast, but they're in your community debating issues, uh, serious issues, getting down to brass tacks about this is why I think my ideas are better than your ideas. And that's what a debate's supposed to be all about. So we can watch it and go, you know, that guy made a good point or that, uh, that candidate made a good point. And we're not seeing that at all. And it's really deteriorated at the federal and provincial level uh, over the last several decades. And even the formats of some of them have been so disastrous, including the one that we had televised yeah. in, the, in the Manitoba debate, where it was almost useless. It was 50 minutes the of... The rancor was unbelievable. Yeah. And and the... Like, like I thought that Wab Canoe's performance during this campaign was rather measured and steady. He didn't, you know, he didn't show any signs that they were saying, you know, you're risky, he loses his temper, he, you know, all of the other things that they, they named him as. But the one moment that after the uh, chamber debate was cancelled, it was kind of the UFC moment of the campaign where he was calling him out. He was like, no, no, I, I, I'm calling you out, Pallister, to come and debate me. And it was this kind of moment in the campaign where I was like, where have we got to uh, if the premier won't debate anyone? Uh, yeah, I think the... Um I think we have to reestablish in the public debate that de about why leaders' debates are important. And uh, we all know that uh, most leaders' debates do not produce seminal moments. Um, although, I mean, I can think of, of, I can think of debates. <clears throat> I can think of 1999, the, tele the, the televised debate with Gary Dewar and Gary Philman, where uh, you know, Dewar uh, went after Philman on vote splitting on the and uh, and Philman turned to the camera very awkwardly and started and talked about how it was sort of like finding out that your your spouse was cheating on you and it was that was one of those moments where I don't know what you were I, I looked at the TV I pointed and I said that's it uh, he's lost the election Philman was horrible in that <clears throat> particular yeah. debate uh, yeah. it, it was a it was a it was a turning point in the campaign and it was it was somewhat baffling um, you know he's no stranger you know no stranger to debates and he's you know no rookie and he in for some reason that debate uh, he just came across as uh, lackluster and he got he got kind of confused on some of the questions and it was uh, it was a changing moment in the in the in the in the campaign which which was a close campaign I mean the NDP went won it but they didn't win it by much it could have gone either way. I mean, that's a perfect example, too, of who won really that debate. And I think, hands down, people felt that Dougald Lamont had won that debate, uh, the one televised debate, because he was measured, he was controlled, he came across as uh, 
he was direct for both uh, the NDP and the Conservatives, whereas they were just going at each other. James Badome looked lost in his paperwork and, and so on. But, you know, Dougald seemed measured, prepared together, and I think directly saved his leadership. Because by all accounts, if you lose, reduce your party beyond party status, for many accounts, you'd question his campaign, his, his leadership style. But, I mean, I mean the, his performance in the debate, I think, illustrated that he's going to be leader for a while. Yeah, and it's uh, very disappointing for them to lose official party status. It was so long in the making. I mean, they hadn't had it since 95. Um, they went down to one MLA for many years, John Gerard. They finally battled their way back to official party status with a by-election, and it lasts a year. Uh, and it, and it's, it is a big deal. Uh, it's a big deal for, for the party in terms of having staff and having people working for you. To asking do, to questions. Do, to asking, question yeah, I mean, you've got the resource side where you've got, you know, five or six or seven staff members. You've got a bunch of office space in the legislature uh, to provide you with material to work with. Uh, and, and you've got speaking rights in the House and, and uh, at legislative committees where you're guaranteed uh, positions uh, on those committees and speaking rights in the House. It's, it makes a huge difference, yeah. and it's, it's a big loss, and it's, it's disappointing for them because they deserve better. They deserved at least at 66, that. 66,000 votes. You know? yeah. 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 And, and while we can't fix first-past-the-post uh, first voting, uh, like we're not in four years going to introduce proportional representation, as fascinating as that may be, um, you know, they, could, they, uh, they can be granted official party status. I mean, I, I certainly will write that I think that, it's, it, that they should. Um, they have more votes now and one fewer seat than they did in the previous legislature. Even if you add the total that do go the three thirty-seven hundred votes or whatever you got in the uh, by-election, and there's no magic to the number four. No, it's completely arbitrary. You know what'll be interesting, of course, is that uh, in this particular instance, I believe that the uh, the governing cons- uh, progressive conservatives want the liberals to have party status. Exactly. And it's the NDP that doesn't want them to have yeah. official So party it should status. be an in- interesting dynamic when they start yeah. uh, battling over this. That's right. Different kind of catfight. It's still a cat fight, but two different Still a cat fight. Uh, I was just going to add that Dougald, too, he won his own seat, as opposed to what Rana did in 2016, not winning a seat in Fort Rouge. So his leadership is pretty much locked in at this point, and his party is supporting him uh, in terms of staying on as leader. Um, I'm interested to see how closely the federal election mirrors kind of the storylines that we had in Manitoba, whether it's it's not so much kitchen tables with Andrew Scheer, but it's keeping money in the pockets of mm. Canadians he's already been using as his line and seeing Trudeau not show up to leaders' debates, as we saw with Pallister. How, how similar are these narratives going to be? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, it, there's so much... Uh, ba- the Liberals are carrying so much baggage into this election um, you know, really, and this is one of those rare elections where it's not just about the survival of the liberal government, it's about the survival of the leader. Um, you know, if it, if it ends up being a, uh, a conservative minority or majority, that will be the, uh, the quickest end to the most popular, a guy five years ago who was the most popular politician who, who whose party, he and his party drove voter turnout to, uh, to you know, really uh, um, levels that we haven't seen in a long time. Like, to, to see that all come crashing down in five years would be, it would be a, just an incredible event in political history in this country. Um, so you've got that desperation, uh, certainly on the liberal side. 
On the conservative side, uh, they've come out strong. They've staked on the $6 billion income tax cut and then about another billion dollars and a half of other uh, tax expenditures and changes that, you know, put more pocket uh, money in people's pockets. Yeah, he's skipping the... That's a good thing, Tom, is that you got pockets. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you're, you're definitely... You're in the running for this one, but... I matter to Andrew Shear. Yeah, no, you do. Yeah, and... Um, but uh, so... I mean, I, I think the dynamics the same is that it's a two-party race. Um, I, I don't think that the Greens or the uh, the NDP uh, will form much of a threat this time. So this is really and that <clears throat> the lack of an NDP alternative is certainly a benefit to the Liberals in certain parts of the country. Um, you know, certainly it's going to be a benefit in Quebec. It's going to be a benefit in Atlanta, Canada. Uh, so yeah, two-party race makes it similar in some respects for sure. Yeah. And are we looking at a liberal minority? I I think realistically, yeah. That's that's I think that's where where it's at. Uh I will declare that this is the first election in Canadian history where indigenous issues will be one of the top 4 issues. Usually we're never mentioned, there's no reference, it's a throwaway question usually or something like that along in the debate. But at the if the City TV McLean's debate is any indication, it was the second question. And the second question on the docket is Indigenous issues, and that's directly because the Prime Minister has made Indigenous issues one of his linchpins during the past four years. Now, unfortunately, that's also what's bit him, and that is probably his his Achilles heel because of the the mere sake that he overpromised. When you overpromise, this is what happens, and. Uh, so the immense amount of disappointment, and I think during the debate, Andrew Shear said the immense amount of disappointment that he's had on that file is true, but he also has probably achieved more than almost any prime minister in recent memory. And so it's this weird dichotomy when it comes to Indigenous issues, and that's that I think will be interesting. For me, that'll make this election, very, this election campaign very notable. I know my phone's ringing off the hook. I can only imagine other media commentators like to go on every single show to comment and say something on, uh, on what the Indigenous issues are in this campaign. Whereas for the most part, I, it's just not even mentioned. I can remember when I was a kid, uh, you, would, you would very realistically think Indigenous peoples don't exist anymore. Because throughout the 1980s, 1990s, and the 2000s, Indigenous, nothing. There's no mention at all. There was no interest. Simply because you could just rough, ride roughshod and just take the land whenever you wanted to. Now with all the Supreme Court decisions, activism, social media, it's impossible to do that now. So... Uh, it's, that's an, that makes this campaign, I think, very interesting. But in a weird way, that would be where the NDP, you think, would shine, but they're, they're, they're missing the boat. How does Trudeau do a better job of selling what he's achieved on this file? And why has he done such a poor job of communicating what he has achieved? Well, I think because I think they've actually done a better job than most. But the problem is, is that the big issues overshadow the little successes. So the little successes are removing boil water advisories, achieving an Indigenous languages commissioner, uh, downloading child welfare onto First Nations. But then the the sides of it is the same old draconian uh, controlling relationship that the Indian Act ensures poverty to maintain. So if if you try to fix a window in a broken house, the window will eventually break, or it's almost pointless to work on the window when the foundation is cracked. And so because he's never dealt with the foundation, that's the problem. It's almost bigger than Trudeau. 
But uh, because he overpromised and said things like, we commit to the 94 calls to action, we commit to the United Nations Declaration, uh, those, when you overpromise like that, then you create expectation. And then when changes fail to happen because you can't do a Meech Lake constitutional style change, you shouldn't be surprised when you disappoint. I will say that that, that, is the, um, th that is the great downfall of a leader in a party that is swept into power on you know, what is perceived to be this wave of progressive optimism. I mean, you look at the, at the Barack Obama uh, phenomena, you know, it was supposed to be a seismic change in the tone and direction of US politics. First um, you know, man of color to become uh, president of the United States, um, you know, uh, a whole new era. And of course, you know the problem is, and, and much to the metaphor that you used, um, you know, uh, leaders and parties come in, and then the the harsh reality of real politics comes in. I'm not using that as an excuse, but that you know, uh, Justin Trudeau made these promises when he was an opposition leader, and you know, the one thing we know about opposition leaders is they're full of expectation and uh, and optimism and very low on the nuts and bolts of, of how the government actually operates. And so he gets in and you know the finances are more complicated and the politics within his own caucus is more complicated. And, uh, you know, and then you start making excuses for things that you, you, know, you don't deliver on, electoral reform. You know, he, was, he could not have been more convinced that he was uh, going to do electoral, uh, uh, you know, bring in some form of electoral reform, and then could not back away from it fast enough. Although, here's the one thing I'll say also about why I think this election is going to be historic. So, uh, the child benefit, uh, universal child benefit, legalizing uh, marijuana, um, and carbon tax. So, um, maybe not the first one, but the last two were largely considered to be. Uh, suicide missions in Canadian politics. And so I am fascinated by a government that can bring in those two things. Now, the carbon tax is going to be a live issue. I don't think, I don't think anybody wants to debate you know, legal pot. Even Andrew Scheer has said, that I think that they're not going to roll that back. But you know, that, like, this is a government that, that went and did a couple of things that most pol federal politicians in this country thought would be, would be easily their undoing. And he did it, and uh, and that's those aren't even the reasons why he's teetering on the edge of, of the abyss, and I just think this is the damnedest election, you know, for those reasons. Yeah, you th I would have thought the carbon tax would have hurt him more. Although, you know, they were clever in how they rolled it out, in in that they're giving more money back to some people. Uh, there are some people who will spend very little on a carbon tax who don't drive uh, automobiles and live in a in an apartment who are getting these checks back on their income tax return. Uh, so that really softened the blow a lot. I think that was you know well thought out and won't do anything to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions at all, but um, it makes them look like they're doing something on it. I mean, I'll be fascinated to see how the Conservatives kind of frame the Indigenous file because they're so porous themselves on it. Um, there is just such an interesting uh, specter in this entire election that I'm interested to see how it's going to continue to play out of Doug Ford and how Doug Ford's... Be we saw it mentioned in the debate. I, I, I announced in the debate when I was tweeting that it only took eight minutes for Doug Ford's name to be sort of brought as a specter in this federal campaign. And so I think that's an interesting, uh, you know, untold story, or maybe it will be more told story.
In terms of live issues for me, I, I'm watching the, the climate file, carbon tax environment. I think that's going to be the biggest issue for me. Maybe it's a generational thing here, but that's what people I'm talking to are interested in and seeing where the parties stand see, on. We, we all thought we were going to die before the environment <laughs> ceased to exist. So it's a live issue for the older people too. Well, no, in terms of there's people my age and myself included thinking about this, about not having kids uh, because there just might not be a planet around or it might be considered dangerous to bring children into the planet right now. So um, that's what I'm watching and where the parties stand on carbon tax and climate plans. Yeah, that's, that's it for me. Uh, well, and uh, that's it for Jessica. And I think maybe for this week, that's it for all of us. Uh, you've been listening to episode five of Not For Attribution, uh, Winnipeg Free Press podcast. And uh, with another five weeks, I'm looking at the expressions on the panel's face when I say this. With another five weeks of election campaign, um, we're going to try and squeeze out a few more uh, podcasts. So uh, if you like what's going on, uh, you know, give us a thumbs up, send an email to my boss. Did I tell you that I got an email of a, somebody who said they would renew their subscription if we kept doing the podcast? That makes one person. Yeah. Hey, you, 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 know, you know how we're measuring success these days, right? <laughs> That's positive. That's a positive. Anyways, thanks everybody on the panel and thank you listening and we will see you in one week's time on Not For Attribution. <laughs>